Today, here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth. I'm here with Phil Byrne uh, of uh, BSI Engineering. Thanks for joining us today, Phil. Well, thanks for inviting me, Mike. Good. Uh, let me tell everyone about some of the guests that are coming up on the show uh, so that they know what, what to listen into. Next week, we're going to have uh, Scott Davis from Pencor. They're the largest single buyer of residential real estate, single-family homes in Cincinnati. He's got a great story to tell about his company. Uh, then we're going to have on Friday, a week from today, we're going to have uh, Steve Roding of Roding Insurance. Uh, it's a insurance company founded back in 1921. Uh, they're a brokerage firm. They represent top carriers, and they're going to be talking about uh, some of their offerings for people. Then we're going to have Kevin Cummings of Battery. Battery is a internet type company that provides a visual platform for enterprise collaboration. Uh, so home, whole teams can, can share in, in visual projects. Then we have Patrick Clements from Pinnacle Solutions. Pinnacle is a, an IT consulting firm specializing in, specializing in business intelligence, uh, e-solutions, custom solutions for IT services in Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky. Next would be Sean Fox from Schooley Mitchell Telecom Consultants, and they have an interesting business model where they go into companies, look at their Internet and phone usage, and show them ways to, to save money. And they take a fee, which is a percentage of the savings, which is a, a, a valuable way for some people to be buying those types of consulting services. And then we're going to have Axiom Consulting, a fellow named Bob Tate, they're a service and product development and innovation company based out of Bangalore, India. Their vision statement is a little bit of axiom in every product. Underlies their fundamental desire to play a constructive role in product development across various product categories. The last one I'll talk about is Wendell Bell, who is the CEO of Enerfab. They are a manufacturer of steel vessels. And... You know them, Phil? Yeah, I do. Actually, one of our uh, engineers used to work there. Good company. Phil, you're the president of BSI Engineering today. That's correct. You're also one of the founders? Yes. Okay. The company was founded back in March of uh, 2007, and you've been instrumental to the rise of BSI to be the fastest-growing, most decorated engineering company in the tri-state area. 2009 winner of the Couriers Fast 55 2010, 2011, 2012, you were a finalist. 2009 and 2010, Cincinnati Chamber of Commerce, Chamber of Business Excellence finalist. 2011, Cincinnati Chamber Small Business of the Year winner. So you've won a lot of awards. Yeah, yes, we have. We've been fortunate. Okay. You've grown in gross revenue every year since its founding in 2007, where you went from a million dollars to over 13 million in 2012. A privately held company? Yes. Okay. Uh, how many employees do you have now? We're up to 87 full-time, and then some Flex and Alliance partners that bring us a little bit over 100. Mm-hmm. Are you primarily all of the employees in the Cincinnati marketplace? Uh, no, we have an office in Chicago. Uh, we've got a couple of employees that are working and assisting us down in uh, other areas of the country, but uh, for the most part, we just have those two offices. Cincinnati is the, is the hub, and uh, Chicago is our first satellite. Um, and of the 87, 75 roughly are in Cincinnati, and the other 12 full-time are up in the Chicago area, mm-hmm. seeing our clients there. 
So there are seven principals of the company. That's correct. And you've you've held the position of president and managing principal from the beginning. Uh, yeah, that was uh, when we first started the company. I was the first employee, and so we talked about that and decided that that'd be the uh, first step to take, primarily because I think I probably have the most experience. Okay, and the industries that you serve are primarily chemical, renewable fuels, food, beverage, and pharmaceutical. That's correct. Okay, interesting. You you grew up on Long Island. You grew up in a place called Carl Place, Long Island. Yep. Right. Right near Mineola in Westbury. Not a lot of people know where that is. You have a uh, New York accent. I grew up in New York and Long you? Island. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I lived so in Smithtown in Uniondale. And, Smithtown, yeah. I rode my bike there one time when I was a kid. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yes, uh, I grew up in, in Carr Place. My family lived there. They're Irish. My grandparents, anyway, were all Irish immigrants that just settled in New York City. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my father bought a house out on Long Island in Carr Place when he decided he didn't want to raise his family in, in the city. So he moved. Uh, he was from Manhattan. My mom was from the Bronx. What brought you to Cincinnati? I wanted to ultimately go to graduate school at the University of Dayton. And mm-hmm. then I uh, interviewed with Procter & Gamble when they came up to campus. And I took a position with Procter & Gamble when I first graduated from UD. Uh, worked down here in Cincinnati because that, obviously that's where the corporate headquarters are. <laughs> and then they uh, uh, transferred me uh, to assignments there and they sent me out to Virginia. Portsmouth, Virginia. They had a Jif peanut butter plant out there. I was, I was in the food division. Okay. And uh, ultimately came back to Cincinnati, not with P&G. Uh, they were probably going to keep me there a little bit longer than I wanted to be. Uh, and I had started dating a girl in uh, Cincinnati before I went out there, uh, mm-hmm. before I was transferred. And so I uh, uh, made a decision probably based on emotion more than anything else to come back to Cincinnati and uh, work with Westinghouse. Worked there for five, almost six years. Westinghouse turned it over to Jacobs and Floor Halliburton Nuclear Fuel Systems. It was out at the old Fernal plant, which is now basically a preserve. And uh, worked there, and then uh, that's where I met Brian Spiker, who's actually the, uh, the gentleman we named our company after. So um, long and short of it. BSI. Uh, BSI, yes, stands for Brian Spiker Inspired. He died of pancreatic cancer in 2003. Oh, sorry. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, he's a... Uh, um, had he lived, I don't think, uh, I'm sure, BSI wouldn't be around. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he started an engineering company, and um, the year of his death and maybe a little bit after that, um, uh, things took a direction I didn't think were you know, probably where uh, I thought he would have wanted it even, but uh, certainly where I thought it should be. And to make a long story short, left there, and uh, a lot of the folks that worked for, uh, worked, I worked with there and, and other locations all came together to form BSI ultimately over the last uh, six to seven years. So originally it was seven people that came together to form the company? No, actually it wasn't. Um, in the very beginning, it was uh, four, mm-hmm. five. Uh, I say four or five. There was three people that were talking, mm-hmm. uh, myself, uh, Doug Yahtzee, a gentleman named Ron Collier who has uh, since passed, and um, uh, Dan Prickle came in. Uh, Dan and Doug and John are all uh, voting owners and principals of the company. Came together, then added Sharon Bates, who's a voting owner. Roger Ruggles is a, a voting owner. Uh, those uh, folks came in a little bit later. Um, but in the very, very beginning, in uh, 2007, uh, there's really uh, the four of us and Ron Collier and a, another gentleman who came in for a brief period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always curious on an engineering company. How did you get your first account? Uh, it was a relationship. Um, <laughs> well, our, our business is built completely, uh, almost completely, on existing relationships, to be honest with you, or at least certainly the way we started. Our first billable work uh, on uh, March 22nd of 2007 was with a gentleman and a client, uh, now BASF, but at the time it was Cognos Corporation, that I had known for years, You know, met with Brian when he was still alive, and that was our first billable work, uh, and then some of the other work that we had from uh, Ineos. Madison was from like John Garmin, whose name I mentioned before, uh, Doug Yatsi. I Actually, you know, because I'm on radio and Jeff Lawson would probably kill me if he, he, <laughs> if he was listening to this broadcast. Jeff was actually the second employee and he mm-hmm. later became the voting owner. So, Jeff, I apologize for uh, having not you know, pulled your name in there before. But uh, long story short. So I know at least we have seven listeners. Yes, <laughs> that's right. In the end, um, it really started out with just existing relationships we had. Folks that knew us, you know, engineering is a little tough to sell because you're not, there is no 
product other than the drawings we produce, but for, mm -hmm. the, most, for the most part, it's the relationship you have with the clients, the confidence they have, and the technical ability that you have. And I think the thing that distinguishes us is our service mentality in the sense that there's a lot of smart engineers out there and other engineering companies, but uh, in part because we're an employee-owned and there's a little bit more of incentive, I think, on the, our employees' part, plus the caliber and character of the people we've hired, but uh, they'll they'll get after it. They will provide a service, you call them two or four o'clock in the morning, they'll do whatever a client needs to have done, and that's as important as anything. So that's really what sold it. There was that kind of relationship that a lot of the folks that we've had, that we have uh, had with our clients, and you know, we rolled into it. That billable work, I got a phone call. Company actually, I was started on March 13th, uh, on Brian Spiker's birthday, on March 22nd of that first year in 2007. Uh, we got a phone call about two or three days prior to that from our first client, Jim Hansford, uh, asked if I could come up to uh, Kankakee, Illinois, and help do some work. And Jeff Lawson and I got in the car and headed up there to go do it. Well, that's a great story. Uh, do, you, do you regularly get called at 4 o'clock in the morning for, for work? Well, I don't. You probably have to look at the instrumentation controls and automation folks, but we do startups. Uh, okay. You know, so we're a full-service engineering company. We've got eight different departments. So we've got electrical, mechanical engineers, chemical engineers, instrumentation control engineers, civil structural architectural type designers. We'll do a project from start to finish, whatever a client needs uh, on any piece. But as a complete project, we'll build in you know the manufacturing plant and do from concept to to startup. And those phone calls that we're talking about, the four o'clock in the morning, they're they're usually the uh, instrumentation and controls guys or electrical guys. Uh, when startups, you know, running a miss, let's say if that happens, or just in general they have a problem and uh, you know need our assistance to get the, the uh, plant back up and running or the startup running smoothly. Good. Uh, Phil has agreed to take calls, so if you have any. Any questions for for Phil, you can uh, call in and we'll answer screen those calls during the commercial breaks. The number is 646-595-4916. And uh, we're going to take one of those commercial breaks now. We're going to listen to uh, a couple of uh, sailor commercials. This is a message for professional salespeople. It's an unusual message. I'm going to tell you that our product is expensive and difficult. It takes effort to use, and it's not for everyone. We provide difficult but effective sales training. It's the kind of training familiar to champion athletes. It builds winners in the world of business. We don't promise quick fixes or color brochures, only hard work that will teach you how to sell effectively, even when your price is higher. If you're tired of hearing, I want to think it over. If you're finally ready to invest in yourself and your sales career and learn how to close more business faster, call me, Mike Roth. 513-646-6523, and we'll invite you to our next Lunch and Learn Sales Discovery Workshop on February 5th at either 8 a.m. or 1 p.m., 513-646-6523. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. You've heard our commercials about sales and sales management, but you haven't made the call for some reason. Maybe you're having your best year ever. Maybe you think a sales development company won't work in your industry. You're different. I wish I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Maybe you're afraid that if you called, you'd buy something. If you're happy with all your sales and profits and believe you have all the answers or simply don't see yourself investing in yourself or your people, then don't make the call. We have nothing for you. For over 20 years, we've been coaching, mentoring, business owners, and sales professionals who are serious about their careers. So if you believe that Sandler Sales Training might make you better, faster, meaner, and stronger, Call me at 513-646-6523 or register for our next open house, Roth & Associates, the most experienced sales trainer in Cincinnati. You can check us at www.rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth. I'm here again with Phil Byrne. Phil, why don't you tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you after the show if they have questions? Well, they could call me uh, in our office uh, in uh, Blue Ash, Ohio. Uh, that's where our home office is. Uh, call me just at, at 513-201-3100. And if they'd like to look at your website? Uh, it's uh, www.bsiengr for engineer.com. Great. So in the first portion of the show, you said that most of your work comes from uh, referrals and introductions, the way I can interpret that. Right. 
existing relationships with our clients. Mm-hmm. Do you do anything else to go to market? Um, what we typically wind up doing uh, is people who have related businesses to the client, our existing clientele, we mm-hmm. will contact them. But almost all our growth has been really as a result of either existing relationships or referrals from our existing clients, which speaks highly of the caliber and the uh, uh, of the people that we have and the relationships they have with their clients. Is that how you wound up with uh, an operation in Chicago? Yes, exactly. Uh, we had, at the time, uh, there were two clients that we felt we could uh, build a satellite office out uh, around. Uh, the concept for the satellite offices has always been it would be a microcosm of the Cincinnati office in the sense that it is a uh, full service, has all the different engineering disciplines that you would need to do a project completely from start to finish, and then maybe not as many of them. And the only reason, <laughs> the only reason I say that is... Uh, uh, the more people there are, you have to be ready and willing to sign up for that. We've grown to be larger than I thought we would. Uh, so I suggest anybody who opens a satellite office for us or who's in charge of one that to be careful what they wish for. You know, 20 to 30 people, two in each discipline, maybe four to five designers to support them, uh, you know, basically is where it comprises the, the number of, the, of that range, 20 to 30, with some project managers, obviously. And to help do the project and you know, business managers as well. But uh, if you go too much larger than that, you know, you're just and they, you're, all those disciplines are involved in every project. If you do one from start to finish, the question becomes how big a project you can do. So, but the way I've always described it to like Scott Gage, who's up running the Chicago office for us, is if you want to take that and go further with it with Mike Swift and some of the other folks that are up there, you know, have at it. Uh, we'll support you. But be careful what you wish for if you choose to go beyond 30 because let, let Cincinnati have the headaches for you of, of having 100 or 200 people or, or however large we ultimately wind up growing. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself opening up in, in other uh, distant cities? Absolutely. If uh, we have the right client you know, mix, we need enough to support the business there. But what we normally do is there was really two reasons for the satellite office. The primary reason since clients roll, I mean, uh, in our business, they are ultimately it. If you forget that, then I think you're you're on a downhill swing. Uh, but they're, so they are the primary focus of our business, and so therefore we want to provide the personal attention. But the secondary reason for having the satellite office, to be honest with you, is you have a lot of engineers and designers, and you know it's tough to travel uh, mm-hmm. I'm out of town for an extended period of time to service a client. So if you can provide the you know, the front-end uh, definition of the project with folks that are local, give the personal attention to the client. Our business, the way the electronic age has gone, you can do a lot of the work from a different location, and it kind of lessens the burden to travel for uh, the folks that are back in Cincinnati who might be supporting the project because they do have people right there in the area around the client. So it's twofold. So you've implied that you have a lot of high-speed Internet. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Good. Just out of curiosity, who, which vendor are you using? Uh, you know, you're <laughs> Corey Klaus and the rest of these guys would probably be all over me. I'm not exactly sure who we're on right now. Uh, we've we've been fortunate uh, uh, to you know develop a good network of servers, and uh, I'm not sure who our, our supplier is right now. Mm-hmm. We uh, discovered that Cincinnati Bells and their bioptic service was much better for the radio show than our prior vendor, yeah. who shall remain nameless. Okay. But we're 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 optic, so yeah, yeah we. Uh, we would have a, a show where one hour and 59 minutes and 30 seconds was perfect, and 30 seconds of the show, randomly spaced, would be... Uh, Erratic? That's too kind of word. Had latency, <laughs> let's put it that way. And, okay. and you couldn't understand people's words, so that vendor was given a chance and couldn't clean up their act. Yeah. So, so we went to Cincinnati Bell. Uh, do, so you you really don't have any salespeople in your organization? No, we really don't. We, um, you know, I guess most of the folks back at the office would probably tell you I am that person. But uh, you know, first two years as an example, when I started, I was functioning more as a project manager and mm-hmm. become sort of an account manager. But what we did is we uh, set up some programs to encourage our. our well, we're all employee owned, so uh, we started the company with the idea in mind that five people own twenty percent of the company and. The whole plan all along was we're just stewards of the company. We started it, but uh, the intention is passing on to the next generation, generation after that, and so on and so forth. And as a result of making that arrangement, we also said, well, you know, why don't we reward the three aspects of our business, which is 
bringing in the work, doing the work, making sure you're making money doing the work. So we set up a performance-based system that uh, evaluates every project that comes through the door, uh, gives credit to those who bring in the work, do the work, build the work, and uh, and make sure we make money doing the work. And that's that's worked out pretty well because we wound up, let's say in 2007, one, two, or three people bringing in work. Now I think I just got done doing uh, the ensuring the profit portion of it and the uh, 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 bringing in the work section of it. And there's well over 30 people now who are actively engaged in bringing in work. And it's based upon encouraging them when you're working with the clients, you know, hey, if you can, a client likes you, you have a good relationship with them, and you can talk them into bringing in the work, you can be the richest guy in our company. It's, it's set up that way. That's great. We've always had a, a saying here that in companies like yours, project managers, with, with the add-on work orders can be more productive than salespeople. Yeah, that is true. And it's in part because uh, it comes down to their trust and the technical capability and the ability for somebody to actually get it done. Because sometimes you have some pretty good technical folks, but they, they struggle sometimes in finishing you know, what we call in our business analysis paralysis. But mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day, um, I think we've got the fact that we now are 30 to 40 people we're actively getting credit for bringing in work, as an example. That is our sales force. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Uh, do you have a long-term strategic planning process there? Oh, I do, I guess, in my own head. Do I think it, uh, have, have I matched it up against my other partners? And, and we carefully, you know, figured out a 10-, 15-year plan, um, or even five-year plan for that matter. Really, I guess I'd have to honestly tell you, no, we don't have such a thing. So you don't even have a two-year plan? Well, our, our plan is to service our existing clients, mm -hmm. develop that client base further. Uh, as an example, we identify every uh, client that we have by location, not necessarily by company. So we're doing work at six different BASF, BASF plants, and they're all a whole different set of people that you're working with mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, you may be working at a corporate, but... So the the direction and intent we take is we service those clients and we you know, ask for good references and referrals to other sites and you know you go from maybe being one site in Kankakee, Illinois, to how doing work at and another site now by BASF in Cincinnati to go into four other sites and it's very common in our business to see that sort of thing happen where you know somebody's looking for a good electrical engineer like a Mike Husman or somebody like that in our office and. You know, the word gets around that that's where they're working. So we've been fortunate because, uh, uh, you know, I've been shocked. Uh, 150 clients, and again, I, I consider BASF to be six different clients there, or seven or eight, depending on how many other sites go. But on the 150 different sites that we've done work, uh, I would say at this point, 130 of them have done repeat business. Mm -hmm. And they've done it in, uh, by also referring us to other locations such that we could wind up with 150 or uh, folks. And the only reason the other 20 haven't, we just haven't got done finishing the first project. <laughs> I think. Okay. We'll have to see. Uh, again, if if you have any questions for Phil, uh, the call-in number is 646-595-4916. We have time for one more question, Phil, before we take a next break. Okay. Uh, what do you see as the opportunities and possibilities in the marketplace for a comp an engineering company like yours? Well, there's so much work that's going on right now with natural gas in this country. Um, mm. uh, and obviously, there, there's been a push. It goes back and forth, I think, on renewable fuels quite a bit. But you, you can see trends like that. I don't even know if I'd call that a trend. It's just the fact of the matter that there's a lot of natural gas work being done, and there's a lot of need for engineering on that side of the business. Well, that's both infrastructure and, and production. Right. So if you're already geared for that, uh, which you know one could argue that folks coming out of the petrochemical industry and the engineering side of it would be more than, let's say, uh, others who haven't yet penetrated that. But there's just, I think there's more work out there than, you know, the, the petroleum engineers, as an example, could handle. So since chemical engineers uh, are a good, you know, I won't call them substitute because uh, they're just uh, not focused on the petroleum side of the business, but they both have a very similar background. There's definitely going to be spillover work, I think, out there. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've seen recently. But in general, um, uh, there's just a lot of renewables uh, uh, projects going out there. We we got into the business. I, I, we came out of the chemical, or at least I did, came out of the chemical industry as far as the work I did for uh, other engineering companies prior to BSI. 
that's where I was. Uh, but when we started BSI, there was they were coming off the corn to ethanol. You know, that was almost like the dot com mm-hmm. uh, frenzy, and then it kind of nosedived a little bit. I mean, the companies that started their corn ethanol plants or got them in operation maybe prior to 2005 or six, they're doing okay. But anybody that came in afterwards struggled, I think, just because of the price of corn and everything else that occurred. But there are opportunities like that that you see that you know become more real and sustained. Natural gas is, is one of them, I think. Corn, the renewables, I think, is ultimately going to be sustained. Uh, you know, again, it's one man's opinion, but uh, I, I see work still continuing there on all sides. We're doing still a lot of it. So, you know, normally we would just have gone into chemicals and pharmaceuticals, foods, because that was our base expertise for the people that we hired. Uh, but we've been, I won't say dragged into there because we haven't really been dragged. We, we've walked through willingly and voluntarily, but there's just been that part of the business is still out there. So anyway, that'd be my answer, I guess, to that question. Uh, other opportunities and possibilities in uh, engineering for electrical charging stations all over the country for these hybrid cars that are plug-in? Yeah, we haven't seen that, a lot of that yet. Uh, and I'm not saying we, meaning BSI. I, I look to see if, I, if somebody's out there doing it. Uh, uh, I haven't seen a frenzy there. I, and, and you don't like frenzies anyway because that's more of a fad. But, you know, a steady buildup. I, you know, I personally would like to see that. Um, and certainly we'd like to be part of that growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not like I've had... You know, a lot of people saying this is going on, and we keep track of what's going on in a lot of other engineering companies as well. So, yeah, uh, we, we, uh, I have a friend who bought one of the new Tesla S's. That's what I'd like to get. Actually, uh, it's funny you say that. Yeah, uh, I've looked at them. They're they're nice. The ones I've seen, and now they're down in the sixty to eighty thousand dollar range. The ones I was looking at, which uh, yeah, is, the, 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 dropped the, quite a bit of price. The, the shorter mileage version is uh, down that fifty five sixty thousand dollars starting point. Uh, the one I looked at that uh, my friend Glenn bought. Uh, was over a hundred thousand. Okay. He bought the extended range batteries. And how great a distance does he get out of those? Well, uh, he he picked Before it up in Columbus and had no trouble driving it all the way back here to Cincinnati. He said he over had over a hundred and fifty miles of range left. I think after he got back to Cincinnati. Yeah. So yeah. That would put it in the two fifty maybe. Three hundred. Three hundred. Yeah. Well, but that's he, great. But, but what he said is that Tesla is uh, planning on putting in charging stations, high voltage DC charging stations to provide charge to the car mm-hmm. uh, along the interstate, interstate system. Do it in half an hour, yeah. Yeah, do it in half an hour, really high voltage. Mm-hmm. I thought that's a hell of an engineering project. Yeah, yeah, but I haven't seen it yet. But, yeah, I'm impressed. I don't even know the gentleman who started that company, but I know how much money, on a personal note, as I understood it, when it first came out, that he poured into it. And my hope is that he does well. That uh, they're all making a profit. Yeah, and because they, they, I know they, you know, were working off grants almost or his own personal investment to get there. And I, I, it's great to see an innovation like that. Yeah. Their, their battery is a lot different than anything else you've ever seen. It's in the frame. It's in the frame, and, and it's uh, the way I heard it described is like a double A cell, sixty sixty eight hundred or sixty eight thousand of them right. soldered all together. <laughs> A little, a little strange, but it's got a low center of gravity because of that. We're going to take a commercial break here, and we'll be right back. We're going to listen to San Rule number 47. I'm Brad Massey with Sandler Training. I'm talking to you about rule number 47, selling as a Broadway play performed by a psychiatrist. What does that mean? Selling as a Broadway play, it's about a performance. It's about sometimes having to do things differently than we're comfortable doing. It's about making changes. Sometimes I need to speak with enthusiasm and excitement. Sometimes I need to speak more subtly and articulately, and I need to explain things deeper. Um, Performance by a psychiatrist. What does psychiatry have to do with this rule? It means we have to have an understanding of human dynamics. Being a psychiatrist is about understanding human dynamics. It means we need to be able to manage the way we speak with people. Um, Be an objective participant to the event when we talk to people. Keep our emotions under control. Be able to ask the appropriate questions in a manner that is not contingent on the outcome. In other words, sometimes 
I really want to close business, I get emotionally involved. And what the other person is telling me has too much impact on me. I just need to understand that there's a process in how we go about interacting with people. And if I can say the right things, if I can ask the right questions, then I don't get emotionally involved with this opportunity. And the right thing always happens, yes or no. This is Mike Roth and Phil Byrne. Let's ask you a little different question, Phil. What do you think people are looking for when they hire a engineering services company like yours? Well, most of our clients would answer that, I think, by telling you that obviously it starts with technical competency, especially in the area or the experience with the type of project that they're hiring you for. You know, it's not always necessary that you've done exactly the same uh, type project, but at least something similar and you know, showed capability. Uh, that's the first thing, I think. Second is is that they do want uh, the service mentality because uh, most of our clients, when they do approach us or show, uh, introduce us to the project, um, they're, <laughs> they're usually a little bit behind schedule and, and needing help to catch up or, you know, sometimes they've spent too much time analyzing the cost of it. So they, the third and last thing they ask besides immediate help is that you're going to do it for obviously a reasonable price, which every one of our clients uh, is hoping for and expecting, and I think that's true for every engineering company that's out there. I thought you were going to say they're, they're looking for the project to be completed yesterday. Yeah, well, it's, that's typically the case, which is, again, why I think we did as well as we did from the service mentality. You know, as you were asking about the 4 o'clock in the morning phone calls, sometimes you're working in the very beginning to that to catch up, right? Mm-hmm. Let's change subjects back over to the Internet. Did you guys develop your own website, or did you, did you uh, contract that out? <laughs> Ultimately, we wound up contracting it out. The reason why I'm laughing is initially uh, what we, we did was we tried to create one on our own, which was good. And because uh, we were all employee-owned company, uh, we wound up with you know everybody wanting to participate, which is good. Uh, and then when they actually went to go put, put everything together, it was you know like a committee, you know, creating or developing a horse, if you've ever seen that cartoon. And it's, it was an ugly affair in the sense that we had just, it didn't look, uh, it, it, it didn't it didn't look like uh, one person had created it with a theme in mind. It was, as it really was, about 15 people who really wanted to, to help advertise their particular line of work and the department that they were in. And, and we decided, you know, we need to go for a little bit more of a professional look. So then we went outside. Mm-hmm. Lisa Riker, I'll throw out her, her name because she was the one I ran into down at the Chamber of Commerce meetings, and uh, she helped us and the company she was working for develop our, our website. What was the name of the company? Well, she doesn't work there anymore, but, you know, again, it goes down to relationships. I do work with her again. Um, you know, to be honest, it escapes me right now. That's okay. Uh, what we did is we got the initial development, and now we maintain it ourselves. Okay, you maintain it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Now now it's it's all ours. I mean, we... we Brought them in for an initial feed, help get it set up and get the original platform created. And then after that, we've gone in uh, and added to it and done the revisions ourselves. So, so do you do your own search engine optimization? Uh, yes. The people that are in the IT piece uh, take care of that, but yes. Mm-hmm. And you, you have your own blogs and everything? Uh, we don't have a blog. Interesting. But are you guys active on Facebook and LinkedIn? Yes. You find those to be... Uh, good business sources of developing new business leads? Uh, not tremendously so. I find it more to be a connection for uh, good people, you know, uh, resources to help get, you know, recruit people or, or you know, most of the people in our company have been hired because five or six people within the company knew them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had, you know, connections made and certainly folks that I've known who had, uh, found out we started an engineering company have contacted me via LinkedIn as an example. Mm-hmm. I don't have a Facebook page. I can understand that. Yeah. A lot of people don't. Yeah. My children, on the other hand, <laughs> That's another story. I rely upon them to do all the Facebook connections with everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you doing much on uh, Google Plus? No, not a lot. Okay, some people are advocating that. 
We have a, a theory of operation here that simple solutions filled to complex problems are invariably wrong. Perhaps you could share with our listeners a complex problem that you ran into that you came up with an equally complex solution for in, in terms that the average layman, average business person would understand. Don't put it in, in engineering ease. Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, most of the complex problems we have, maybe because we we do have such good, smart engineers, are not engineering problems. They're usually uh, personnel pieces. And I guess one of the things when we first started the company, we we we, we struggled with trying to, well, I guess I call it what I'd say, appreciate what we have. You know, it's hard to argue with the success we have. Mm-hmm. That, you know, and, and in life, I think sometimes that happens. You know, you you don't really realize how much you have to be thankful for. You're spending a little bit too much time looking at somebody else's plate and saying, hmm, you know, I, I, I think when we first started the company, we had some situations where we uh, just needed to step back and take a look at that. And as far as a complex solution to the problem of not doing that, uh, I guess my answer to that is we set some programs up uh, that once they were executed, like the performance pay program, uh, uh, like our vacation program, which is, uh, I believe, to be honest with you, uh, obviously I'm biased here, but I'd say we're the best show in town from an engineering company's perspective for employees. What have you done? Well, I'll, I'll pick <laughs> on the performance pay program. It's unique in the sense that it's as quantitative as it can possibly be. So it, it tries to remove as much subjectivity to assigning uh, uh, performance pay. And performance pay is averaged anywhere from Five hundred to sixty-six thousand dollars in a year for our employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's eligible. Not everybody gets it, but everybody is eligible. And so, what we did is we went down and analyzed every project number that we take out in a year. Who brought in the work? Who did the billable work? Who helped making sure the profit? And we went through each of those and then quantitatively assessed that. You know, twenty-five. I'll pick bringing in the work as an example. Twenty-five percent of the credit for bringing in the work comes from the initial point of contact. Mike Roth comes to work for BSI Engineering and decides that he wants to, uh, um, you know, I don't know what your background is educationally, Mm -hmm. but, you know, if you're going to be a project manager, let's say, uh, and you happen to bring a million dollars worth of work in uh, by being the initial point of contact, you get 25% for that million. Mm -hmm. If you were the one that did the subsequent points of contact from the initial point of contact up to the point where an actual proposal could be written, you get another 25%. Mm -hmm. If you then write the proposal, you just say, hey, I can do this, and this is a buddy of mine, and he probably doesn't even care what the proposal looks like, you get another 25%. If you give the proposal to the guy and it's not a de facto, you're going to get the work handed to you, but you actually have to, I don't know, take him out to dinner or persuade him in whatever form or fashion, you get the other 25%. We're a $10 million company, Mm -hmm. and you just brought in a million dollars and got credit for a million dollars. I can very easily tell you the exact quantity of your performance pay is going to be there. We take 40% of the money that's set aside in performance pay, and we put it in for bringing in the work. You would get 10% of that if it was $10 million in work brought in that year. The idea was to set it up so that people could see how the system set up and how it worked, and then get after it and do that. And we do the same thing on the insurance and the profit. Performance pay, 40% of the set in performance pay goes to bringing in the work. 30% of it goes to doing the billable work. I don't qualify for the second one anymore. Mm-hmm. The first two years I did. Third is making sure you make money doing the work. That could be the project manager or the lead discipline engineer. It's very quantitative. And the fourth item is we added. It used to be 40, 30, 30. Now it's 40% for bringing in the work, 30% for uh, uh, doing the billable work, 20% for making sure we make money doing the work because we break even. At least everybody stays gainfully employed. 10% for the overall business management. So we try to do it as quantitative as possible. And then we removed this year the one guy that might, if he gets a tumor or just goes south on you and forgets what, what it, that the company is all about, the people that are working there, uh, we removed him from the performance-based system. That would be me because I'm the one who's doing the assessments. You know? Oh, okay. Uh, now, the idea behind the whole thing is that uh, we wanted to reinforce that, hey, this is a good company to work for. We have much to be thankful for. And then you, to prove it to you, you're going to share in it as quantitative as we possibly can. So that was a performance pay program is one example. The other piece we just did recently is, uh, I don't know, how old are you, Mike? In your 50s? Mm-hmm. Okay. You're in your 60s? Um, yeah, that's oh, okay. probably right. Well, I'm in my 50s. So if you're you're in your 20s in our company, you're, now I'm going to use the word eligible, but you're eligible for six weeks vacation. Uh, now, eligible. 
If you're in your uh, 30s, you're eligible for 7. You're in your 40s, you're eligible for 8. You're in your 50s, you're eligible for 9. You're in your 60s, you're eligible for 10. We got Easley, who's a flex employee, but he's he's eligible for 11. Um, point simply being is, because we own the company, we could do such a thing, and here's the way it works. Now, when I say eligible, you're going to get your base two weeks, but a lot of times people are out there working, and they switch engineering companies, as an example. So mm -hmm. maybe you're in your 50s, and you've been working for Jacobs, and you decide you want to go over and work at BSI, well, or any other engineering company. For mm -hmm. that yeah, a lot of years in at Jacobs. Yeah. You typically go back and get two weeks vacation. A lot of people don't like to make the move because of that. That's correct, and that was one of the things we're trying to offset. On top of that, we had somebody in our company, actually Jeff Lawson pointed out, and he's very accurate, typically what happens when you make those kinds of moves, you're giving up that vacation, but you get it in lieu of pay. Right? You can mm -hmm. say, hey, I'm losing three weeks that I accrued over here. Now i got to go back to two weeks. I'd like that and pay. And it kind of takes away. But for those people who really enjoyed uh, vacation, I being one of them, though I haven't quite had the opportunity to enjoy it the way I wanted before the company started, uh, we wanted to make a program that you know was attractive. So what we said was, in the beginning of every year now, we just implemented it uh, two years ago, um, we would tell the employees, okay, if you're in your 20s uh, and you didn't want to, take some overtime pay, and you didn't want to take your profit sharing, which we've had every year since we've been around, mm -hmm. you know, and that could be, I don't know, anywhere 6 to 12% of, of your pay, depending on the year. Uh, you were, you know, you get performance pay. You can, you can take PTO up to that part that you're eligible and sacrifice that. And even though we don't know whether it's going to be there, mm -hmm. we trust the employee and simply say, here's the way it works. You want six weeks vacation, that's fine. Here's how you buy it. We think you're going to get this amount of profit sharing, this amount of performance rate. It's a projection, but we give it to them up front. And then, you know, of course, when I went back and we had conversations with the other voting owners, they're like, well, what happens if you, you know, the employee leaves the company? And what happens if we don't have profit sharing? And what happens if we don't have performance pay? You know, I don't know. I can't answer all those questions. But we're not hiring satanic people, okay? So if they if they if they leave, we'll talk to them and mm -hmm. we'll say, hey, we're gonna have to hold back the last part of your paycheck because you weren't here. Bottom line is we introduced it, and um, and again, that, the reason for doing that was as much as anything to just say, look, this is as good as we advertise. And if you're not really seeing it, there's two things alone that separate it for you. So stop looking at everybody else's plate because to be honest with you. There's more than enough on your own. Yeah, so. that's, that's pretty unique. We're going to take another short commercial break here, and uh, if you have any questions for uh, Phil, you can call in on 646-595-4916. Imagine you just left your prospect's office, and he now has your proposal, quote, or estimate. What do you suppose he's going to do with that valuable information that you just gave him for free? Call you tomorrow with an order? Get real. He's shopping it around to the competition. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Roth & Associates. I'm the most experienced sales trainer in Cincinnati. I'm constantly amazed how salespeople operate. They believe a prospect asking for a proposal means the sale is as good as closed. Face it, trained prospects will turn you into an unpaid consultant. For over 20 years, we've been coaching, training, and challenging professionals who are 100% committed to long-term sales growth and profitability, no matter what it takes. If you're deadly serious about increasing sales, call me at 513-646-6523. Find out how Sandler Training can make you better, faster, and stronger. Or register now for our next open house, 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. If you're a salesperson or a company owner, my message is critical for you. Today, I want to talk to you about the real secret of getting out of debt. Earn more money. Most salespeople and owners want to sell more at a higher price with better margins, but don't know how. I've helped hundreds of people and companies grow over 30% per year by making an investment in themselves. Albert Einstein said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. I teach my clients new and different strategies, tactics, and behaviors that get dramatic results. I'm not for everyone. I'm tough, expensive, abrasive, and not politically correct. But if you want results, we need to talk. Call me at 513-646-6523. Give me your toughest questions. Then, if you qualify, I'll invite you in for a free meeting. 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth with Phil Byrne. Phil, before we go on to another question, let's ask you this one. You've been running the company now six and a half years. Six and a half years. Perhaps you could give our listeners a leadership tip that another CEO or company president 
would find the value? I guess don't go quietly in the night is about the best thing I can say to anybody. And what I mean by that is uh, the part I underestimated, I think, when we got the company started, I, I guess I always knew people had uh, difficulty confronting situations. Um, I remember when I was at Procter Gamble when I first started, Daryl Christian uh, gave me a, <laughs> a backhanded compliment one time uh, and said that I had something uh, that a lot of people didn't necessarily have. Maybe it's growing up in New York, I don't know, where I was willing to confront things more than the average person. But he made a statement that I think I, at the time I scoffed at it, but I think it's true. He said nobody likes confrontation. Some people can deal with it better than others, but nobody likes it. And, you know, he's right. No one really likes it. I hate it, to be honest with you. But I'm more inclined to do it than the average person. I've come to understand that. And so as a leadership tip, I guess that's the part. Stick as close to the truth as you possibly can. And when you see something that isn't there, you know, uh, don't go quietly in the night on it because it will kill your organization in a heartbeat. We've had situations where, uh, you know, things needed to be dealt with. And, you know, I hope to retire without ever having laid anybody off. And knock on wood, we've never had to do that. But that's not the same thing as having performance problems. We've been pretty good, and we have just about no turnover. But um, we're, we probably scrutinize you know, our hires even more now than we ever did, um, just because sometimes it's, it's difficult to, to find people that you know, subscribe to our stewardship uh, philosophy that we've got in the company. And, um, and that, that'll hurt you. So, you, you know, don't go confront the situation. Uh, you, you mentioned Interfab as an example. I got one quote that came from the gentleman I was telling you uh, that uh, used to work there, that okay. was Chad Kelly. And his, his, his comment or quote that he brought from, the, from somebody he worked with at Interfab is, bad news ages poorly. So as soon as it's there, deal with it and don't turn away from it and, and address it as quickly as possible because it's only going to get worse right? quickly. Right? Good. That's great. Let's go a little backwards in the time we have left and, and talk about your company as an employee stock ownership plan company. How, sure. What percentage of the employees actually own a piece of the company? Uh, 90% of the company, or 90% of the employees own part of the company. And every six months we offer uh, stock up for the employees to own, and in some cases significant uh, uh, blocks, meaning, you know, uh, we at least put 1% open for general ownership, and then we we make it offer to, to an employee that seems to be interested a 1% uh, share of the company. Uh, and part of it is depending on the uh, hiring agreement and, the, and what this person's interested in. But the intent all along was uh, I started off owning 20% of the company. I think I'm down to about 11, 10, 10 to 11%. The idea was to share. As, as the company did well, we'd all do well and share the wealth. Uh, and uh, and we, 30 people in the company own 1% or more, 20 or more than 20 people own 2% or more. So we're, you know, we followed that model and we kept to it. And, uh, and I think our, our ultimately the most important part is our clients see it because the people that are out there uh, serving them actually own part of the company. So, you know, they, they, they know that if they don't treat the clients well and do well, uh, they're going to be hurting themselves ultimately. Has that served well for employee loyalty? Oh, yes. I think so. That plus the environment we've created. I mean, I, I do think you have to ask them. Uh, but the one thing I'll always uh, I'll thank everybody that ever came over to get the uh, company going. That's the greatest uh, thing that I'll appreciate when my time's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why 86 other people came over, but it I'm sounds, appreciative of it. It sounds like you're running a rather unique company. Well, I think we are. I do, but I'm biased. Uh, it's, it's hard. You have to ask the folks that are there, but we haven't had, we've had next to no turnovers. We've had retirees and we've had some performance problems, but for the most part, people that come to work for us stay. You know, we're celebrating a lot of, we've only been around six years, but we're celebrating a lot of five and six year anniversaries. So that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Real good sign. Do you see any accelerants to the, to the growth of your company in the market? Um, I do think we're probably getting, you know, I mentioned before that you've got a lot going on on the uh, natural gas portion of it. And we have a lot, you know, 20 to 30 people in our company are chemical engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's probably the largest, you know, discipline that we have. Uh, I, I see that probably not dr- only driving uh, or accelerating ourselves, but probably a lot of the other uh, engineering companies in this country. And and good sign for the petroleum and chemical engineers that are coming out of school. Right? Mm-hmm. So. Was that a good a good thing for you when uh, 
Ashland Oil spun off the uh, chemicals division? Uh, not yet, but we, we believe it will be. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Right. And uh, you said Cognizant was your first account. That was your yeah, first bill of war. Right. They, they changed hands, didn't they? Yes. Uh, ultimately, uh, BASF came in and bought them. Mm-hmm. And the Cognizant that we actually worked with at the time in Cincinnati uh, had two parts of the company. They split into two, and then BASF bought the Cognizant portion and the other part, uh, Emory Oil Chemicals, which is a great client, you know, wound up with two clients from, you know, maybe one at one point. But, uh, yes, uh, Cognizant or BASF is one of our best clients, and, uh, you know, we look forward to, I hope, you know, working with them for the next generation after me. That's that's good. Uh, in building the company, do you have a, a management training program to build the next generation of leaders in the company? I, I have to answer no to that, but what it amounts to is uh, we're, we've set it up so that the folks that come in that are young, uh, we try to give them manufacturing experience, and then we try to have the everybody's pat mentored up, if you would. Like, we've got young engineers coming out of school um, <laughs> surrounding Chuck Easley as one example in our company who is uh, in his 70s, the idea being that, you know, Chuck is to mentor them and the technical aspects of it. From a management point of view, as far as the business, we're probably doing it more on the fly with the, with the current ownership of the company that we have, right? They, they recognize, and, we, and that's what we've been strategically doing over the last three or four years, is making sure we've got a good balance of folks in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 40s, 30s, 20s, so that uh, people can be can learn and be groomed to take the company over, you know, when I hopefully I retire in the next 10 years. You know? mm-hmm. Have you noticed any uh, issues in communications between the various generations that you have in your company? Because you had a great example there of a company with uh, five or more generations in it. You know, actually, I really haven't. Um, you know, having the older guys... Or women, because we have a lot of women, not old. They're not old, and the women we have in our company. But bottom line is, as long as they're willing to teach, I find that the younger folks that are coming in want that mentorship available to them. Because they're a little concerned, some of them coming out of school, they don't really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, they want the experience. Okay. You know, Phil, I, I want to thank you for being on the show. And I'm going to be giving you a copy of uh, Sandler's book, You Can't Teach Your Kid to Ride a Bike at a Seminar, along with a million dollars and a uh, past training sessions. Uh, uh, Any last comments you have before we have to go? No, Mike, I appreciate you asking me to to be on. Um, I guess the last bit of advice, for what it's worth, um, for anybody who's out there and wants to get something started, we probably picked the worst economic period of the in, in, a, in a long time to get started, but I paid no attention to it. And I don't think any of my part, well, they might have, but certainly if I had just gone ahead and done an analysis, I might have not. Uh, and I encourage anybody, just, you know, Nike probably had it, just do it. Jump just do there. it. Yeah. Great advice, great advice. Thanks again for being with us, Phil. Scott, why don't you take it away? Thanks for listening. This program is the property of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400.